This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest today is Father Joseph Waters. Father is the judicial vicar for the Diocese of St. Petersburg, which is a very fancy way of saying you handle a lot of the marriage annulment cases, right, Father? That's correct, including other canonical matters, but mostly marriage work, yeah. So, Father, can you tell us what are the top misunderstandings that you see most often when it comes to the annulment process? Well, first of all, I think it's kind of assumed that it costs a lot because that's kind of been the myth that's been out there a lot. The second thing is I think that they think it's kind of a difficult process, whereas most people find it kind of healing, even though it's a difficult process to go through. And then the other tends to be that they think that if the other person doesn't agree, that they can't get the annulment. Of course, no one can guarantee that they're going to get an annulment, but for the most part, it doesn't matter if the parties agree. It matters whether there is evidence of invalidity. I recently had a friend of a friend who I was talking to who is getting married outside of the Catholic Church in the coming months. She actually made the comment to me that she wanted to get married in the Catholic Church, but the church was going to charge her $5,000 for an annulment. This is outside of this diocese. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm relatively sure there aren't dioceses that are charging $5,000 anymore, right? Right before Pope Francis issued his uh, motu proprio, we were kind of streamlining the process, which called for to be more equitable. Most dioceses in the United States dropped their fees completely. Like in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, we have no fees for annulments. Before that, there was really a nominal fee. Like in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, I think it was $250 before, just to handle and make possible to pay for the tribunal. Now we pay for the tribunal out of the Catholic Faith Appeal. Can you describe why an annulment is not a quote-unquote Catholic divorce? Well, one of the reasons I like to use a different term for annulments as the decree of nullity is that an annulment is really not about blaming anyone. It's about looking at the circumstances before the marriage and seeing if there is a reason why their consent was in some way flawed. And we live in a culture that it has a divorce mentality. And so a lot of the premarital preparation for marriage is very flawed. And that's usually the reason why an annulment is granted. And a lot of people don't think of annulment as what it is, basically a freedom to marry again in the church, but rather they see it as somehow that their marriage never existed. And that's one of the great myths too. And so what we really look for is, is there a reason why this marriage was not able to sustain a partnership of the whole of life? So it's not really about the things that divorces are usually about, a conflict that happened after marriage, but it's really about, did this couple really come together, exchange all the essential rights and obligations of marriage, and form a partnership of the whole of life, which took on a sacramental sense? One of the myths out there is if you go through an annulment and you've had children, all of a sudden your children are sort of like in flux. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that? Well, when we issue a decree of nullity, we don't say that the marriage never happened. We say that for some reason the marriage was not binding. And so the legitimacy of children is always in the Catholic Church about baptism, not how the couple that they were born from has lasted in their marriage. So these children are still considered legitimate Yes. These children were considered legitimate when they were baptized. So anything after that doesn't affect their legitimacy in the church. I think there's a belief out there that if you start working towards an annulment, you're going to be working on it for five years and a whole lot of dirt will be thrown. Well, why we have a a kind of a policy to wait for at least a year 
after a divorce so that hopefully the fighting of a divorce has come to an end. And most of our annulments don't come directly after the divorce. They come later on when there's a new relationship that people are considering to be remarried. But we do everything we can. And what a lot of people don't realize is that most of annulments take place on paper. Each person gives a chance to express themselves towards a series of questions. And so we really try to downplay any of the blame game or the fighting that takes place in a divorce. And even if there is a civil matter still at contention, we won't take that annulment until that's resolved because we don't want to be involved in the fight that takes place when couples are divorced. So how long, if you are starting the annulment process today, say you're meeting with a member of the clergy, from that point on, roughly how long can they expect an annulment process to take? It's hard to predict because there are so many variables in terms of the witnesses returning their testimony, the testimony of the parties. But most of our annulments are dealt with within a year of them being submitted, and most of them in less than that time. Everyone thinks that it's a multi-year thing with 400 pages of paperwork you have to fill out, but there are some other forms like lack of form that a couple can use in some cases. Well, there are basically three reasons why uh, the church can declare a marriage null. The most common is there was a defective consent, and that's what we usually do as a formal case as an annulment. But if the couple was not married according to canonical form, if they were Catholic or one of the parties was Catholic and that marriage took place outside of Catholic canonical form, that's a administrative process which is handled usually in a couple weeks. Uh, it's just a matter of kind of assembling the documents. The other reason is there was an impediment, and most commonly the impediment is a prior bond. And that, again, is a documentary case, which is usually handled very quickly because the documents prove the facts. And now, of course, we have the briefer process, which is in front of the bishop. And when that possibility is there, usually that takes about 45 days to kind of complete a briefer process. The briefer process, though, is not available to many because it's not going to be where both parties are participating and agreeing on the nullity. You had mentioned lack of form. So if you had a couple who got married in front of a civil judge, say, that relationship ended in a divorce, that would be considered a lack of form because originally they should have been married within a Catholic church physically. Catholics and those who marry Catholics are bound by what we call canonical form, which means they have to be married before a priest and two witnesses or have a dispensation from canonical form for their marriage, which a lot of mixed marriages have because they want to get married in the Methodist church or wherever, but the Catholic party gets a dispensation to allow that to happen. So if you are a Catholic or marrying a Catholic and you haven't followed that form of marriage before a priest and two witnesses, then that marriage is on its face, no. That's if they went for a divorce first. Oh, yeah. It's always, you can apply for any of the forms before there is a divorce because we don't want to get involved in causing the couple not to be able to reconcile. So what we're talking about here is for a couple that is divorced and they want to seek the annulment. But if you're a listener and you are married currently, you're a Catholic, you married, say, a non-Catholic or you married outside of the walls of a Catholic church. In that case, we don't want you to go for an annulment. We want you to go for a marriage convalidation. A lot of people don't understand what a convalidation is. It is really a first-time marriage in the eyes of the church because the former marriage wasn't considered a valid marriage. So a lot of people who think it's a blessing kind of just do it offhand where it really is supposed to be a new act of the will to exchange consent with this other party. If you are somebody that is not in a valid marriage within the Catholic Church, 
there are sacraments that you should not receive. Can you list the sacraments that you should not receive until you are validly married within the church? Primarily the sacrament of Holy Eucharist and any other the sacraments of initiation. So, for example, the people going through the RCIA who are not validly married shouldn't really come into the church until that marriage is resolved. And one of the things that we want to remember is that the church always presumes a marriage is valid until it's proven otherwise. And so that's why we wait till after a divorce to do that, because we presume that that marriage is valid no matter what the circumstances were until there's either documentary proof or proof in way of witnesses for there to be a reason for nullity. I think that's one of the greatest unknowns out there is people think that, well, I wasn't married in a Catholic church, so the Catholic church doesn't recognize my marriage. That's not true. No, especially people who are married who were not Catholics or not marrying a Catholic, whichever ceremony they celebrated to be married, whether it was a civil ceremony or a ceremony before another minister or religious official, those marriages are considered valid in the church because marriage is a natural institution which Christ raised to a sacrament. So both of those dimensions are there, even in marriages that are not necessarily conducted under canonical form. Should divorced people attend Mass? Yes, unless a person is remarried, the fact that they're divorced is no impediment for them to go to communion and actively participate in their Catholic faith. Whether they're actually divorced should always attend Mass. It's just a question of receiving Holy Communion. Right. Uh, If they are in remarriage, then they would have to regularize that marriage before they could return to the reception of Holy Communion. Their marriage would have to be brought sacramentally into the Catholic Church. Yes. um, Their marriage would have to somehow be regularized, whether it's convalidation or a sanation, or simply by the fact that they got married and afterwards were baptized, it would become a sacrament. Do you need the cooperation of both spouses when applying for an annulment? The short answer is no. The more preferred option is yes, <laughs> because it's much easier if both parties are participating, because both sides get their story told. But also, it's a lot easier for the judges to judge a case where both parties have had their say, and you can really kind of discern the truth where you don't have to depend as much on the witnesses to confirm the truth of what the petitioner is saying. So this sounds a lot like a court proceeding. I mean, is there like an actual judgment with a judge and the people raise the right hand and everything else? Do people applying for the annulments have to go through a process like that as well as their witnesses? Most of our declarations and witness testimonies are given on paper and they do sign that what they've said is true. So they are taking an oath to make that sworn testimony. But the judge take all the evidence and make a decision and then write up that decision in the form of a sentence. And then once that is declared, then that person is free to marry within the Catholic Church again. Unless the other party appeals the case or the defender of the bond appeals the case because they didn't believe that the judge made the right decision. Okay. In the case of a positive declaration of nullity, that is probably pretty rare, right? That there would be an appeal? No, not necessarily. Oftentimes, respondents feel aggrieved by the decision for nullity, and they want to have a second set of eyes look at it. So they'll appeal it either to the uh, Metropolitan Tribunal in Miami or to the Roman Rota in Rome. We're talking with Father Waters, the judicial vicar for the Diocese of St. Petersburg. There are lots of couples out there that are civilly married but Catholic that go to Mass every Sunday. Can you talk a little bit about the process of bringing their marriage into the fold of the Catholic Church as a sacrament? The first question is why they were married civilly and not in the Church. Sometimes that's a result of circumstances that don't involve a prior marriage, but most often it's because there has been a prior marriage that needs to be regularized. 
And so normally what would happen before a convalidation is that either a formal case or some other way of declaring that marriage to be null would have to be uh, successfully completed. And then once that is successfully completed, then there would be a possibility of exchanging their vows again before a Catholic priest and two witnesses. Now, you had mentioned earlier that the Office of the Tribunal, that you do other things other than marriage convalidations and annulments. Can you describe what else your office does? In the Diocese of St. Petersburg, the bishop has delegated the marriage tribunal to handle all of the marriage preparation requirements. Uh, oftentimes, when files are going between our diocese and someplace else, or when a dispensation is needed or permission is needed, that would come to the tribunal and be handled. As judicial vicar, I would handle other canonical matters of administration and other things that are dealt with. And we have some administrative processes, like, for example, if a person has filled out their employment application and it's been rejected because of a safe environment reason, they have an opportunity to appeal to an administrative tribunal that we handle to be able to allow that to be resolved. Father, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to get out there just to help dispel some myths? Well, I think that a couple things are important. Oftentimes when people begin the annulment process, they're still in that kind of blame game. And what we invite them to do through our questions and through our process is to take a step back and look at what they did in hindsight. And in hindsight, they can usually see more clearly that those problems emerged not in the fifth or sixth year of marriage, but they were there from the beginning. And there was something kind of flawed in the way they exchanged their consent, either because they didn't understand what marriage as the Catholic Church understands marriage was, or they just didn't know each other well enough, or there was something that compromised their freedom like, uh, you know, a pregnancy or somebody was putting pressure on them to get married. And the questionnaires that we use, most people find that they're able to look at their marriage in a different way and to be able to see that it's not about either of the parties failing, but about the marriage failing in the sense that there was something fatally flawed in the marriage. And, you know, of course, oftentimes as judges, we deal with uh, cases of annulment where it really was just a difficult marriage. It wasn't an invalid marriage because the problems arose like in the 25th year of marriage or something like that. So it's not an automatic that if you petition for an annulment, you'll get it. Do you have any idea percent-wise how many annulments are approved versus declined? In our tribunal, we try as best we can to make sure that if there is not a hope of an affirmative decision, that we ask the couples to withdraw and maybe find better evidence, better witnesses, those kind of things. But I would say that about maybe 10% of cases that would be petitioning wouldn't come to completion, either because we said there wasn't enough evidence or witnesses won't cooperate or for whatever reason. In those cases, can the people find more evidence down the road and then resubmit, start over? That's why we try as best we can to convince them to withdraw their petition, because if they get a negative decision, that means they can never go with that cause again to a tribunal. They have to go to a different judge and a different cause that they're petitioning for. Our guest today has been Father Joseph Waters, the judicial vicar for the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And this is How We See It. You're listening to How We See It, a look at issues and ministries that are having an impact in our community and world. If you missed any of today's program, you'll find a copy on Spirit FM SoundCloud page. There's a link to it at myspiritfm.com. Now, back to our program. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest is Stephen Watkins from Good Counsel Camp. 
Stephen, thank you for joining us. I know summertime is a big time for campers and for Catholic camps specifically. There are lots of summer camps in the area for youth. So why should a parent consider sending their child or children to your camp? Our full name is Our Lady of Good Counsel Camp. And so we are the Catholic summer camp for the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And the reality is there aren't many camps like us. There's not many Catholic camps, traditional summer camps here in Florida. And we've actually been serving in this ministry since 1947. So this is going to be our 76th summer. We have a great program, a fun program, a safe program. And like I said, we're Catholic and we're right here just an hour up the road from Tampa. Is the camp for Catholics only or are non-Catholics also invited? What I love about our program is that it is inviting for everybody of any background. You don't have to be Catholic to be a part of it. The main thing is we are, and if I didn't mention it before, we're an overnight camp. So you are actually dropping off your campers on a Sunday and they might be with us for a week or two weeks or longer if you chose to send them longer. And what we do is we begin every morning with mass right in our chapel. It's the first thing we do when we wake up and then the rest of the day is outside. We do all sorts of activities like archery, boating, swimming, arts and crafts, a lot of recreational sports and team building exercises. And then we love to share our faith and we do it through our counselors and the ministry and the relationships that they form with their campers. But every evening we gather back in our chapel and one counselor gets to share a personal testimony of kind of where they're at in their faith and their relationship with God. We form really strong relationships, but we also try to lead by example through our staff and those who are participating. Okay, so this definitely differs from a lot of camps because a lot of camps are just daytime. Right. Where you drop off your child and then later in the afternoon or the evening you pick your child up. But this is a case of you drop your children off and you don't see them. Right. For a week. I can imagine parents being a little bit freaked out about that. Surely you allow cellular phones, right? No. Our policy is you can bring some electronic devices, but they can't have access to a wireless network. And we've had to update that policy over the years as technology changes. But basically, kids can bring in electronics, but they have to stay inside the cabin and then they can't have access to a wireless network. It's not to say that it's impossible to get in touch with your child if there were an emergency or anything like that, but your communication is going to be through the office and we're going to do our absolute best with keeping you updated with how your campers are doing and what they're doing throughout the day. We have a Parents of GCC Facebook group that anyone who registers gets to be a part of. We post updates and photos right there in the group for all of the parents to see. We also have a blog that's private. When you register, you get the link and then you actually get to follow along there as well. So we do our absolute best to keep in touch with your kids. And another thing is just writing letters. You can write as many letters as you want and send as many care packages as you want. Your campers, this is the time to try something new, a little bit different. So send them with letters, send them with pre-filled out stamps and envelopes. For a lot of them, they've never done it before. It's a chance to teach your child a new skill, something that might be aging out in the future. We're not seeing too much of it these days, but the campers need to know how to do these things. And then through those letters, you'll get all the messages of all the fun and also challenging things that they might be doing each day. Technology is always a challenge for us. And the reality is sometimes sending your child to camp is more difficult for the parents than it is for the campers. But to be honest, I just like to reassure the parents, look, your child's are with us. They're safe. We have really strong staff, young people, but they love the program and they love serving the campers. We really push that and make that just a focal point of what we do in our program. 
And every night I'm happy to give the parents individual updates for how their kids are doing. And the rest of our staff loves to do that as well. Anything that we can do to help ease the concerns, we try to make it happen. I'm sure the parents worry more than the kids do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that has become more challenging for us on the leadership side of the staff, but it's also something that we're very aware of and we want to be able to accommodate and put parents at ease while their children are with us. When I hear of an overnight summer camp, I think of being covered in bugs and snakes and everything else. So how is this camp different and how are the kids protected from the elements? We're very much a traditional outdoors camp. In fact, our mission is to challenge youth to build true character through wholesome outdoor adventures and the Catholic faith. Our whole program is set up so that it is a challenging experience for the campers. It is something that they need to be open to and want to engage in. And yes, we are outdoors. So mosquitoes, bugs, creepy crawlies, any creatures that you'd find in lakes in Florida and the woods, we have them. But we are extra aware of these things and have our own safety precautions in place. Our kids aren't actually swimming in the lake. We have canoeing and kayaking. We have a pool where we go swimming. We play it safe. We know where we're at. We know what the reality is and what can happen in an outdoors program. And we have precautions in place for it. I'll say going into this summer, something that is very different for us is in the past, there was no AC in camper cabins. You had electricity, you could bring a fan that you would plug in and set at the end of your bed. This year, part of the Courageously Living the Gospel and the Deanery Initiative for the Northern Deanery, it's been an ongoing project for the last few years that's finally coming to the final stages, but we have AC in these cabins and that is a huge change for us. And really it's a testament to our program when if I made an Instagram post and said that we're getting AC in these cabins, which I did a little while ago, the response was negative from all of our campers. They didn't want it. Part of coming to camp is being in this outdoor, pushing your limits, experiencing new things. And in the past, one of the badge of honor that you earn from coming to camp is I survived camp in Florida for two weeks with no AC. It's a little bit different for us, but in taking care of the campers and making sure that their needs are met. It's hot in Florida in the summer, and we know that. So having a place where they can cool off, especially at night when they can get a good rest, that's important and something that we want to offer to the kids. If they really want to suffer at night, can they just turn the AC off? <laughs> sure. If the, <laughs> we, we definitely have control as to what happens with the AC. They're not going to be cranking it down, but we're going to keep it at a nice, cool temperature for them. Not where they're going to be freezing and not where they're going to be too hot. The idea is that they'll have a nice place to rest their head. Can you tell us a little bit more about the cabins? Yeah, our cabins are really simple. Everything that you see around camp is basically original structures aside from our mess hall. So these cabins were built in the 1950s. They're old buildings, but they're set up in such a way where it's a very, very, very basic. It's just a room lined with two rows of bunk beds on each side. And your campers or your children will be assigned to these cabins in groups of 10 to 12 campers. And every cabin has at least two counselors assigned to it. And those counselors are staying right there alongside your campers. If they wake up in the middle of the night, they have somebody that they can go to. Bathrooms and restrooms are located outside of the cabins, but just 50 feet away in the same cabin area. So it's very close by. At night, it can be a little scary, but that's why we have the counselors right with them, right by their sides. And we make a point to really tell the kids, that come to us if you need us. Let us be there to help you.
so they don't have to worry about running to the bathroom, racing a gator. No, they don't have to worry about anything like that. (laughs) Our bathrooms are close to the lake, but definitely far enough away that they're not going to run into any lake creatures. Thankfully, gators tend to not like to use restrooms. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, yeah, that's that is true. That is true. Fun fact. What about for adults? What kind of training do they go through? And talk a little bit about the safe environment issues that you have to take part in. Our summer staff is definitely a young group of people. Every individual that works at camp completes the background check as required by any employee in the Diocese of St. Petersburg. They also have to complete the safe environment training, which just helps to ensure that they are aware of all the things that could go wrong in an environment when you're working with kids, especially in an overnight program. On top of that, our staff reports to camp a week early where we have an entire week of training that goes over all of the general camp policies as well as our procedures for transportation and emergencies. And we train our staff in all of these procedures and then also train our staff in just basic child care, how to handle difficult situations that might arise, but really with an emphasis on the love of the child as an individual and really how can we make this program safe for them, but also a lot of fun but safe being the number one priority. We're talking with Stephen Watkins from Good Counsel Camp. What are the age limits for the camp? Seven to 15 years old are the age of the kids that can join us. I know for myself, I was 10 years old uh, my first summer. And for the parents that are thinking about sending their kids and you're not quite sure if they're ready, I'll tell you my sisters, because I'm actually from Miami, I grew up going to camp. We drive six hours, my parents would drop us off every summer and they basically just threw me out the car and have fun kid. I loved it. It was the greatest experience, but I had to wait until I was 10 years old. My sisters got to go when they were eight. I always got angry with my parents. Why did I have to wait till 10? Well, Steven, you weren't mature enough. It really, you have to think of your kids and is this a program that they can handle? Is this right for them? Are they excited for those activities? If they're really excited for the program, they're excited for the activities and they've maybe stayed overnight at a relative's house or a friend's house and they've done well, then maybe they are ready for the program. You know, seven is a young age, but some seven-year-olds are totally capable of being away from home. But it's really up to the parents to decide when is the right time for this. So if you have a child that maybe suffers from homesickness, Mm. is a parent able to pick up a child who maybe just can't handle it after a day or two? Yeah. Yeah. So look, overnight summer camp, homesickness is something that we deal with every single session. Now, we will only push your camper as hard as you want us to push them. The main thing, like I said earlier, is just communication. Communication is so key in these instances. We've had an instance where a parent drops off their camper and there's tears flowing. And that's a very difficult thing to say, no, you are staying. And you know what happens? 30 minutes later, the parents are already calling the office asking for an update. And that's totally fine. But what we do is any child like this, we have stages that we're going to try to get them to. And we will work with you and communicate with you exactly how they're doing. That first night at camp, I have a list of campers where I might be communicating with the parents. These individuals might have had a little harder time. Parents need to be aware of this and also know what we're doing to try to help them through getting over that hump of homesickness. Is the camp able to accept campers with disabilities? And what about campers that need daily meds? 
Medications are huge and disabilities can be a challenge. We're definitely an outdoors program and there are certain aspects of our program that physical disabilities might be more of a challenge, definitely for us in our program. Mental disabilities, it depends on what it is. We try our best to work with it. Are we a camp for mentally handicapped children? No, we're not. So we have to do it within reason. What is fair for our staff to handle and what is fair for that camper being in our program? But you can always call our office and inquire and ask us, and we'll have a very genuine conversation with you to find out if this is something that we can really accommodate at camp. As for the medications, we have a certified healthcare professional on our staff 24-7 while the campers are with us. They live in our infirmary. It's one person who takes the lead on administering the medications. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we're administering daily medications, and then we are accommodating additional medications as needed for each individual. And we do our absolute best to make sure that every need these campers have is met while they're with us. What does it cost per child? Is there a discount and where can parents learn more? At this moment, we're registering for the full price so our early bird specials are over, but there's still space to join us at camp. We have four sessions and the first and the last session four remain open for registration. Those are two-week sessions. They're $840 to attend camp. And you get discounts still if you register multiple campers from the same family. And you can learn more about our program if you visit our website, www.goodcouncilcamp.org. Again, that's www.goodcouncilcamp.org. You can also find our pages on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We post frequently, especially as we get closer to the summer. Our guest today has been Stephen Watkins from Good Counsel Camp, and this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it.